0: Well, Australia is a nation obsessed with sport, and we've got the Olympics coming up this year. So elite sport will be on everybody's mind. But have you ever wondered about the medical teams who look after the athletes? We're going to hear about it on Dr. Rama this week. You're listening to Dr. Rama with Steve Robson, bringing you the best of health, medicine and people. My guest this week on Dr. Rama is Dr. David Hughes, who's the Chief Medical Officer from the Australian Institute of Sport. David, welcome to Dr. Rama. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, look, it's it's there's a lot happening this year, um, but I wanted to, to, first of all, you um, are the Chief Medical Officer for the Australian Institute of Sport. But what was it that attracted you to sports and exercise medicine in the first place? How did you land as a sports and exercise physician?
1: It's a a really good question. And I sort of look back on it and think it's amazing how I ended up here because I I had decided to go west over to Perth to do my internship and residency years after going through Newcastle Uni. And um, I was actually quite interested in paediatrics and I had just been given you know, the nod that I was going to get a position on the training program and I was literally sitting outside someone's door, the career doctor's door, and heard him mention something about a diploma in sports medicine in London and went in and asked him about it. So I literally overheard a conversation I shouldn't have been listening to. And I don't know what it was. I mean, I'd always liked sport. I'm not a good sports. I was never very good at it, but I just loved it. And I think I did have this thing in my head that maybe I could somehow mix up my, my, um, you know, enjoyment of sport with my career, and so anyway, I went over to London, did a postgraduate diploma over there. The paediatricians, of course, thought I was mad, thought I was throwing away my career. <laughs> you'll, you'll amount to nothing. Sports medicine's not a thing, you know. And um, I went over to London, and my timing was really great. Timing's everything in life, right? So I, I, I did a, a year-long diploma over there, which gave me a really good taste. It's the first time in my life I actually really enjoyed studying. Um, and met a whole lot of people over there. Um, There was about 16 in our year from all over the world and they're all good friends still and all in senior positions around the world and that's been a great network for me. Um, And then I came back here and just as I arrived back the Australian uh, Australian College of Sport and Exercise Physicians was just setting up their first training program. They didn't have recognition as a specialty, but they were just setting themselves up with a specialty structure. And I was one of the first intakes of registrars. Um, and I actually came here to the AIS as a junior doctor and did a couple of years here and then did a couple of years outside of here with a um a private um, sport and exercise medicine physician by the name of John Kellett, who some of your listeners might uh, remember. John was a name. Yeah, yeah very, very, um, a very academic sports physician who was a great teacher, and he taught me well. Um, and then uh, I set up my own practice down in Deakin. Worked in private practice for um, about eighteen years, and grew that practice till we had about five or six doctors. And then. Um, this job came up at the uh, at the uh, AIS, and uh, I'd always been my own boss. so I wasn't sure that I'd be a good public servant, but actually, and I, I almost didn't apply for the job, but um, a few people convinced me that I should apply. And I have to say, it's been great. I I I love what I do, and um, it's uh, it's it's a completely different um, environment from private practice. And I wasn't sure that I'd enjoy it, but I really do, and I really. Uh, uh, enjoy who I work with, my ability to network, and my ability to, uh, I suppose, influence policy and, um, you know, uh, influence the system rather than just influencing one patient at a time. And I, and I, I'm sure you have a bit of sense of that yourself in your own role. And it's, it's, it's actually quite fulfilling, and I, I really enjoy the fact that. I can use my position, hopefully, to make things better in sport from a safety and integrity and ethical perspective. And, um, uh, yeah, that's what I enjoy doing. So,
0: David, when you went to to London, where were you based? Where was the training done? Because this was the really early days, wasn't it?
1: Yes, it was really early days, and it was run out of the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel, um, and it was a postgraduate diploma. There was a a surgeon by the name of John King, who was an orthopaedic surgeon who had been very instrumental in setting it up and uh i um yeah it was just a small group of 16 people and it was just um at the time people said i was mad because i was going back to full-time study for a year but um, <laughs> it, it it it, you know it, and i wasn't sure at the end of that where it was going to get me or if it was going to get me anywhere but it, it was what i needed just to get a taste of this type of um, medicine this type of science and um and i really enjoy what i do and i i you know like Certainly in my position at the moment, I deal with elite athletes and here at the AIS, I don't deal so much with the professional codes, but more with the Olympic and Paralympic athletes and the pathways leading into Olympic and Paralympic sports. Um, But I have to say in my 18 years uh, in private practice, I I really did miss that when I first got here and I I really enjoyed it. And I, I think people might have the impression that when you're a sport and exercise medicine physician, you just see all these rock stars. But what I would say (laughs) is when I was in in private practice in Deakin, you know, the the cross-section of my practice was probably not much different to a general practice. You know, I saw um, everybody from uh, kids under the age of 10 who had some sort of musculoskeletal issue to uh, people who were in their 80s or 90s um, who had musculoskeletal issues. And then we saw a lot of people for whom exercise was their – You know, maybe it was their method of dealing with mental health issues or dealing with other uh, physical challenges that they had from a medical perspective. And, 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 you know, I'm a big believer in exercise is medicine. Um, I think if all the benefits of medicine could be put into a pill, we'd be giving it to everybody and giving them lots of it because it does such wonderful things for, you know, psychological, physical and emotional health. Um, And I really enjoyed in my private practice seeing the benefits that people gain from exercise, even at a re- reasonably low or moderate level,
0: I think that's a really important point. When I was president of the College of O and G, uh, my time uh, on the council of presidents of medical colleges, a, a wonderful guy called Adam Castricum was the president of of the College of Sports and Emergency, uh, Sports and Exercise. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. And when I first met him, he just seemed to be getting these tickets to these fabulous sport. <laughs> All the time. And I was very, very jealous because nobody else seemed to be, you know, off to the, you know, these fabulous uh, sporting events. But I think I really got a sense talking to Adam at the time of exactly what you just said there, that we undervalue exercise and movement and all of the things that sports and exercise medicine is about. Compared to technology, but in fact, what you can achieve and the the change you can make in people's health and their lives through what the work that you and your your colleagues do is quite extraordinary, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I think so. Look, I I I feel really yeah I, I feel really lucky to have had that experience in private practice, and I know Adam very well, and I know I know the way he practices, and I know his sort of ethos about um, uh, promoting exercise, and um, I, I you know I just I just think it's it's that old adage of you know are we going to are we going to structure the health system so that we stop people going off the cliff or are we just going to park the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and try and fix people up once they've gone off it and uh, um, it, it's it actually is really pleasing. I was walking around the lake with my wife this morning and just seeing all the young people who are out there jogging and things like that. And I think I think the young people might save us honestly because you know you see things like there. The, the dropping alcohol consumption rates and things like that in Australia, all being driven by the young people who are just drinking less than what our generation did, and um, and uh, the, I think there is more of an exercise focus, and it's becoming cool again to be fit. And I'm hoping that that's aug uh, as well. But you know, certainly I do everything I can to make sure that um, uh, governments always reminded about you know the the benefits for mental health and physical health of of regular exercise and uh um i think if 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 everyone was able to achieve or or get close to the the recommended daily dose of exercise then you know we would um i think we would uh we would save billions in the in health
0: i agree with you absolutely absolutely 100% david now look a lot of people listening won't understand what the Australian Institute of Sport is, what its relationship is to, to sport in the country, how it fits in with the Sports Commission. Can you just talk us through a little bit about the role of the AIS? And I wanted to get to then what you and your medical team do at the AIS.
1: I think that the basic premise of the AIS is to um, – the AIS is the high-performance arm of the Australian Sports Commission. Um, So the the Australian Sports Commission is the overarching body that's in charge of everything to do with sport in Australia, including participation rates and, um, uh, you know, very focused on trying to, yeah, increase participation rates in sport and exercise, whether that's um, in an organised sport fashion or in uh, solo exercise. The AIS is the high-performance arm of the Australian Sports Commission. And so the AIS is uh, unashamedly... uh, um, Charged with trying to improve our international performance in in, in, in uh, elite sport, um, but we have a our, our catch cry is win well. So we we never say here win at all costs. We do not say that uh, because we've seen bad things happen in sport. We don't um, we want um, Australians not just be proud of people winning, but being proud of how they conduct themselves in sport, and that's a big part of our ethos here. Um, because we, we think we, we want Australians to be proud of their athletes when they're representing them overseas. And that, that's clearly not always the case, but we hope it's the case in the far majority of situations. So here at the AIS, we have some live-in athletes. So we have um, uh, uh, basketball athletes. We have a, f- a large female and, and male um, basketball cohort. We have, you might not know that at the AIS, we have an NBA as in the National Basketball Association of you know in the U.S. We have an NBA Global Academy here because the AIS has been, I think, more successful than just about any other center in the world in in turning teenage basketballers into college basketballers in the U.S. at U.S. colleges and eventually into NBA uh, basketballers. The the CEO of the NBA said a few years ago, I think if I had a son who was showing promise, I would send him down there to that place in australia because i don't know what they're doing but they, they whatever they're doing it works and so we the, the global that the nba picks up uh kids who are about 15 16 17 from around the world who they think show some promise send them here and that's another squad that's here as well that we take care of um and we sort of try and give them that um high-end uh sort of i say polishing of their skills and that to to, to take them from being um uh, kids with promise to, to athletes who, are, who really know what high performance is and how to conduct themselves and how to train and uh, take care of themselves and prepare them for
0: a, a life as a professional basketball. Well, that's extraordinary. I had no idea that that was the situation. Now, look, I I gather that when you gave up your private practice and moved to the AIS, you faced some extraordinary challenges like everything from the zika uh, around the the uh, rio olympics that you had during the prep for the tokyo olympics you had all of the issues with bushfires and then of course covid pandemic and trying to manage athletes in the in the early stages of the pandemic you had all sorts of crises like that i mean how did how did you find with so much public expectation on our athletes Managing them in in the public gaze like that, David.
1: Yeah, look, I think it, it, it's been a really interesting experience, and I I think what I what I've appreciated is the fact that the brand of the AIS is very useful in being able to connect with other people. So with both the Zika crisis um, prior leading into the Rio Olympics, and with the COVID crisis, obviously leading to the Tokyo Olympics. Um, it was amazing how we got plugged into a whole lot of intergovernmental agencies, like you know, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, even Defence, um, uh, uh, border control, uh, all sorts of infrastructure, all sorts of organisations where you can, who 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 are prepared to sit round a table with um, uh, the AOC, Australian Olympic Committee is obviously the organising committee. Uh, that that sort of gets people ready for the actual games. And just to be able to plug into all of that, have these discussions and make these multi-agency plans, uh, that was a really great privilege and a really, an eye-opener for me that, wow, this is what government does. They have all these things in the background that no one sees, all this capability that hums along. And when there's a problem, and like, if you think about COVID, at that stage, there were no flights in or out of Japan, right? So there were special um, uh, uh, Olympic flights just for the purpose of games to go in to deposit people but there was always the prospect that things could, what, what if things went bad you know and and I had staff pull out in the year or so leading into the games because they felt like well this is crazy going from a safe situation to Australia into a situation of unknown where if you got COVID you could be put in a hospital where you don't speak the language, no, your family can't talk to you, no one can talk to you, all of that sort of thing so it was it was quite stressful for some members of staff and and we respected everyone's wishes with what they wanted to do. But clearly the government had to have a plan for what if it all went bad in Tokyo? How are we going to get the, you know, the thought of having over a thousand Australians sort of stranded in Tokyo with a massive outbreak or something like that. That was something that had to be planned for. But it's amazing. That's what the government does and um, I think in some ways I think that the whole You know, the the Australian public, and I certainly didn't have an appreciation of how much the government does in the background, and you don't realise that actually we're really lucky to live in this country where you've got a government that's constantly scanning the horizon for risk and for all sorts of different things, and there are things going into place that no one is aware they're they're going into place as a risk mitigation in case, you know, worst case scenarios in all sorts of different things. So it's certainly given me a much better appreciation of what a great job government does and the power of inter-agency collaboration across government when there's a big project or issue that's on the table that's complex and they can bring all this expertise to the table. It's quite impressive.
0: Absolutely. Now, I'm going to ask you, before I get to the concussion uh, new guidance in a second, I want to ask you what you would say the difference is between managing the health of a high-performance elite athlete as compared to sort of the usual medical practice, because it must be very different, David.
1: There are differences, but if I could, I, the first thing I'd like to say is what is the same? Because you imagine it would be so different, but at the end of the day, you know what they want? They want someone who listens to their story, takes it seriously, and actually thinks about it, and thinks about it, and and, 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 and empathises with their particular position, you know, that, look, I know normally you wouldn't let someone push on with this, but this is the only Olympics I've... Missed out in the last two Olympics. This is, I finally got there, but given my age, this is the only one I'm going to be going to. So, uh, you know, yes, it's I understand it's high risk to push on with whatever the condition is, but you need to appreciate I've put 12 years into this and this is my one shot. And, you know, so something like that might be. Um, But really at the end of the day, they're just human beings and I think what they want to be is treated like a human being. And what I say to um young Doctors who sometimes come come in here and meet with me because they're they're thinking of a career in sports medicine, they just want to have a chat. I say to them, If don't do sports medicine if you're a fan. Because <laughs> really? Because if you if you if you're gonna be a fan, <laughs> you're dangerous. You know, you have to if if you're gonna do sports medicine if you want to be a fan, you get a ticket, you go and sit up in the stadium, that's where you belong. But if but if you want to do sports medicine, you have to remember That the number one thing is your duty of care to the patient who is the athlete and it doesn't matter what the coach says and if the coach you know you know and most of the coaches i've met are fantastic people and they just need a reasonable conversation and they do the right thing but if if you if you disagree if you think that there's people are making decisions which are not going to be safe you have to be prepared to say so you have to be prepared to be unpopular um and at the end of the day you've just got to keep in front of mind what is actually best for the health of this person because all these things in sport uh, they're fantastic and i and i've seen some wonderful things you know i've been very fortunate to be on the sideline to see some absolutely amazing sporting moments but um at the end of the day if you make a decision that actually you think you're helping the person at the time but it affects them for the rest of their life because of some particular injury that you could have potentially prevented they're not going to thank you in the long run and sometimes you just have to be the grown-up in the room. Um, that's the role of the doctor, often to be the grown-up in the room and say, "We, um, you know, this this is not a good idea to go ahead, and this is why." And so re- I'm not going to clear this person to play. And and look, what what I what my experience of coaches is, while they always love, of course, they want their star performers um, out there um, doing what they need to do. But as long as it's clearly explained and you and you 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 can back it up with the evidence and that. Um, good experienced coaches know that um, it's not the right thing to roll people out when, that's, when there's some sort of uh, significant threat to what they're, what they're intending to do. But, uh, but sometimes I, I do say you do push on with people where you say look, this is the risk. It's not going to be it's not a life-threatening risk but you just got to understand that this thing could go pop or it might not stand up to this and um, but as long as you're willing to accept that risk, you know, this, this is something where I think there's a reasonable chance you'll get through this. But, you know, like everything in medicine, there's not – not many things
0: are black and white. Yeah, and I think it, it seems so high stakes because a lot of it is in, in the public gaze and yes. you have the high expectation. Look, I want to move away from elite to the concussion guidelines that were released Um last week and the, the genesis of those. Are you happy to talk me through those and, and um, the evidence behind them?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, look, we, we've produced position statements um, since 2016. And it really came about because I think back in about 2014, I think Peter Dutton was the health minister and his um, ministerial advisor rang me and said, look, there's a, there's a, there was a lot of controversy in the papers about concussion. And what they wanted, there was a lot of criticism of the major sports, which I I, um, I I didn't agree with, but essentially what the minister wanted was an independent position statement that was written independent of sport. So we wrote a position statement in 2016. We've upgraded it every year. And um, this one is probably our most comprehensive, um, uh, the 2024, and it's named con- you know, concussion and brain health because acknowledging the concern that is out there in the community. Um, and it's a real concern. It's a palpable concern. We know that there are some schools, some secondary schools in Australia, who have closed down successful team sport competitions programs that they've had in their school because they have been convinced that that will damage the long-term brain health of the children. Now, I don't, I don't agree with that. Um, Premise for a number of reasons, but it's that doesn't matter, it's an indication of the amount of anxiety that's out there. And I have to say that I have a real um uh I'm very cognizant of the fact that this role as chief medical officer of the AIS carries a fair bit of responsibility just because of the brand of the AIS. And the one thing that I, I'm very proud about about being in working for this organization is that. Universally, everywhere you go. If I go overseas, and uh, you know, I say I'm the chief medical officer of the AIS. That opens doors. I mean, the AIS is renowned around the world as a a great centre of excellence and one of the first that really modelled this. You know, centre of excellence where you bring a lot of expertise onto one campus and and then um, have people come through the campus. But um, I um, I'm very conscious of the fact that the AIS is obligated almost. By dint of its good reputation and its a sense that it's government, it's neutral, that th- what we say makes a difference, and therefore we've where there's where there's concern of a of a of a uh, safety nature or an integrity nature in Australian sport. I think it's really important that the AIS and the Australian Sports Commission have a voice. Um, whenever you try and lead with something, you have to expect that you will attract criticism at times, and that's that's um, that's absolutely how democracy should work but uh uh i think i've I've got used to that it's funny i didn't think i would but i've got used to that sort of thing and i but I, i feel very keenly that responsibility in my role that we can't sit back and expect someone else to do something if we don't do it who's going to do it you know what i mean um and we've so we've had a r- range of different issues we, late last year we launched a sun safe position statement in sport with uh georgina long and richard scolia which was yeah. fantastic um they were co-authored it um which was a, a great experience uh, just because we're aware that athletes are out in the sun much more like yeah. why well, you all know the sun messages but actually we are seeing young athletes develop skin cancers including melanomas um and you know w- we need to we just need to make Sport organisations are aware of this, that we have a responsibility to provide a safe uh, you know, training space and a, and a safe competition space for athletes. Um, so there's a whole range of different issues out there that we, that we address. But as, uh, that, I think, just want to make that point that I think the, if the AIS isn't going to stand up and say something about these issues, what other organisation is?
0: Absolutely. Look, David, I, I know how incredibly busy you are, and I'm extremely grateful that you've taken the time to talk to me. I'm in awe of what you do. I'm in awe of the, the mission and all of your medical team at the AIS. And I want to thank you for what you do. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you this afternoon.
1: Thank you, Steve. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you too. You've, you've made me think about some things I haven't had to think <laughs> about deeply before. So it's uh, it's been it's been a really enjoyable chat. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining me on Dr. Rama. You've been listening to Dr. Rama, a podcast produced on Ngunnawal Country by the Australian Medical Association. All rights reserved.